Adrian, it's been a little while since you and I have been sitting across from each other doing this podcast. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's great to be back. It's summer travels, you know. Summer travels. No one, no one is ever in the city at the same time. And Michael and I were down in uh, Miami for the Young Elected Officials Conference, which was a great time. We got a chance to meet with and interview uh, a whole bunch of young progressives. And today we've got a an old friend uh, of ours who is the political director at ABC News, uh, Rick Klein. Rick, welcome to the Electables. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Great to be with you. So uh, there's been a lot going on in this race, particularly this past weekend. A lot of them were down in Iowa. We're over in Iowa for the state fair and the wing ding dinner. Uh, and Rick, I just wanted to we just wanted to get your current thoughts on the field and who do you see and sort of where do you see the race right now? Yeah, I, I think there's been kind of a remarkable degree of stability in the race based on what we're seeing, based on the polling that we've seen. You know, um, if you look at uh, where Biden was at the beginning of this race and where he is right now, it's basically the same. Um, it feels to me like you've had kind of a first tier of candidates emerge um, who are driving news cycles and, and, and driving a lot of coverage uh, and periodically some other folks who are popping in. But um, there's sort of a rhythm to it, um, it seems to me. Um, I'm always, I always, at the beginning of an election cycle, I'm worried about the storylines. And, 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 and it, to, to this one, to my mind, has begun to make sense. There's definitely been surprises. Um, I think, you know, Mayor Pete's rise at the beginning of the year was a, was a big one. Um, I think you're starting to see so many interesting things between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, the whole rise of Andrew Yang and his, you know, his likely quali- qualifying for the debate is certainly a storyline. But um, there's a there's a rhythm that I think the campaigns are starting to recognize of uh, of, a, of a first tier of candidates uh, and uh, and a very wide open race beyond that um, that you know I don't think anyone's putting a lot of money down on uh, on who's going to win the nomination. And Rick, to that point, you know I I have frankly been surprised. I think a lot of people have been surprised by Joe Biden's durable lead. I mean he, you know he's yeah. made some gas, he's had some mistakes um, here and there, but he. Um, seems to have this really rock solid lead in the in the primary, and I think the more people who are in this race, the better that is for Joe Biden. But as the race inevitably tightens, of course, ABC has the third debate. Um, the qualifications for that debate are more stringent than the than the first two debates, which means the field is going to be smaller. And I think the field just by default will winnow um, as we go into the fall, into of course early next year before the Iowa caucuses. Do you think? Do you think that Joe Biden will be able to keep that strong lead as the field? Windows. It's interesting, you know. It strikes me that that everybody was right about Joe Biden. If you thought that he was a strong front runner, um, he is still a strong front runner. If you thought he'd be defined by his gaffes, um, that happened as well. And it, it, what's mm-hmm. interesting is a bit of a conundrum that, despite um, both the proponents and the critics being right about him, he's still there. He's still standing, and it seems like a lot of things have rolled off of him. Um, which is not to say he's been running a perfect campaign. He certainly made mistakes um, in his campaign, I think, would acknowledge that. Um, the, the gas machine has, has been in evidence. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I've heard the theory of the case advanced by some of the rival campaigns that says that, you know, there's no real movement with him because he is he has such wide name recognition and gets a lot of credit among likely Democratic voters for being Obama's vice president. And, you know, people haven't really tuned in beyond that to pay attention to the dynamics of the race, but to recognize that, uh, that there's vulnerabilities there. Um, I think the strongest thing he has going for him, other than the Obama Association, is the, the general election 
matchup polls that we're seeing. And when you see him alone among the candidates winning a state like Ohio in polls, I think that, you know, I think a lot of Democratic primary voters are just practical at this stage. And until or unless someone else can demonstrate that they can beat Trump, uh, it's going to be hard to shake him from that perch. Um, the president is engaging more with Biden than with the others. Um, clearly, we've seen um, at, at the debate that the other candidates are hitting Biden more than everyone else combined. Uh, but there is a durability there. And, you know, he did, the, the, despite a lot of the, the skepticism about uh, about the timing of his candidacy, about the messaging around his candidacy, about whether there should even be a candidacy, he's a he's he's in pr- pretty strong place in a in a race. That's, it's hard to get 30 percent when there's 20 something candidates. Right. It's right. Like, that's, that's a very difficult thing. Um, as we see, all of these senators and governors are struggling to get up north of one percent. The fact that he's at that stable, you know, high 20s, low 30s thing is is real and and sustainable, um, you know, and it's durable until it isn't. It's, it's, I mean, people have this comfort level with him until they don't anymore. So it's, it's unknowable at this stage. But uh, he certainly surprised a lot of people by by keeping the, you know, the, the kind of steady steadiness of his uh, of his standing. Well, and to that point, Rick, I mean, we'll we'll see how the fall goes for Joe Biden. But ironically, you know, he's run twice before for the presidency. Um, clearly, he's older than he was the last time he ran and the previous time. Um, but ironically, this could be his moment. I mean, this could be sort of what he has his entire career has led to, given the fact that he, um, you know, reminds a lot of people of the good old days from the Obama administration, but he also um, is somebody that people know and trust and he has deep roots and we'll see if he can maintain that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it always, the retrospect is always, always more interesting, but you know, he's been running for president for the better part of 30 years. And, you know, he went from being too, arguably too young for the job to being arguably too old for the job and, and ran a lot of campaigns in between, not really great campaigns in between either. And look, the, the whole Biden campaign premise, is that people are just going to look to revert to normalcy after the Trump years, that um, every election to some way in some way is change election. And the ultimate change would be to to turn the clock back to, you know, someone that there's a real comfort level. And they push back on the notion the campaign does that he doesn't have a forward looking vision. Um, they think his progressive policies line up favorably with with all the, all the rest. But what, what really fundamentally is, is the Biden candidacy is based on the idea that you, you know Joe Biden, you're comfortable with Joe Biden, and you want to feel a sense of comfort after this chaotic couple of years that Democrats have experienced. Hey, Rick, I wanted to look at another one of the top tier candidates, um, and that's uh, Senator Harris. And I feel like we have all been waiting for her to take off. And that, you know, after the first debate, there was there was some evidence that she had picked, she got a boost but now it looks like things have sort of reset and she is, you know, she's, she's, she's trailing, you know, she's probably in fourth, fourth place in most polls. And it just seems like to me, like we've all been, I have been waiting for her to take off and I know it's early, but um, there's, there's, it seems like, you know, she gets a, she gets a little burst and then things fall back to where they were. Um, and so I'm just get. I wanted to get your thoughts on both her campaign and whether or not you're seeing that same same thing. Yeah, I think I think you see the the the, the lack of uh, you know big rocket fuel rise. I think that's reflected in a campaign that's pretty buttoned down and no drama. I, I don't sense a lot of 
panic in Harris world about the fact that she hasn't rocketed off. I think they got exactly what they wanted to get out of that first debate where she executed a, you know, really well played uh, attack, an orchestrated attack on, on Joe Biden. I mean, you go back to the clinic uh, of how she went after it. It wasn't even teed up by the debate moderators. She just did it. Uh, and that got her a burst of, of recognition. And then beyond that, it feels like she is trying to be the kind of the just right candidate for, for Democrats. She is certainly espousing a whole lot of progressive policies, but um, is trying to find a middle ground between the, the Sanders Warren wing and the more establishment, you know, Biden led wing. Um, I think the Medicare for all position that she's taken is probably a good example of that. It's also uh, an example of, uh, you know, where you can be criticized from both sides for being, you know, too cautious or too cute in, in the labeling. So, yeah, I think there's a, I think she is a, she's a very cautious, uh, campaigner. And, uh, and I think, uh, she can be very clinical and very deliberate in how she does it. She doesn't open up a whole lot about herself. Um, but I, I think there's an argument to be made that she's put herself in the conversation and, um, you know, that a lot of this, game now is played just to be there in the end you know i've i've thought in my head for years guys that the um that 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 a democratic primary in particular um it kind of kind of like an nba basketball game where um there's a lot of running up and down the court early on um but everything's going to come down to the last two minutes and you can get blown out and be out of the game in the last two minutes but if you're in the game uh then you have a shot and then you got to execute your moves in the in the final two minutes. And the final two minutes are really, you know, January, February. It's, all, it's still six months off. And to that argument, I mean, you can't if you get blown out early, you don't show up at debates. You've got a problem. Kamala Harris doesn't have that issue. She's going to be at the debates in the fall and beyond. She's going to be part of the conversation. And, you know, she's likely to be one of the last candidates standing. Whether that makes her the nominee or not, you know, nobody knows. It really depends on how the game is played in the stretch. So, Rick, um, I think a lot of us have also been equally surprised by Elizabeth Warren's strength in the polls, how she is, maybe not even surprised, it's probably not the right word, um, impressed, I guess is probably a better word for me, um, you know, especially since she had a rocky start at the very beginning of the campaign around her announcement and trying to deal with the um, attacks on um, her uh, her her Indian American um, claims. But I guess my question for you when it comes to Elizabeth Warren is, I mean, I think there's no doubt that she's going to continue to climb in the polls. But what I've been sort of surprised by is the lack of opposition research, the lack of attacks really on Elizabeth Warren's record um, that have been lodged at her. And I have to think it's just a matter of time, especially since, you know, in some polls she's polling right under Biden at number two. It depends on what, what poll and what state. Um, do you think that it's just a matter of time when we're going to start seeing more attacks on Elizabeth Warren's record? Um, and who do you think those attacks may came, come from? Well, I, I think it's interesting because she puts herself in a, in a decent spot now where she's been, it seems like, pretty steadily eroding the Bernie Sanders position. Right. And um, there's, a, there's a sense that either she or Bernie kind of advances to the final, that, there's, that they're, they're in the progressive bracket. Um, I expected at the last debate to see some the, some first signs of real splits between Sanders and Warren. Um, the, the dynamics were much different. We're really with the two of them being attacked from the from the moderate senators and governors uh, and, and congressmen on the wings, um, and they can sort of team up against the others. I think that is a great position for Elizabeth Warren to be in for a while. Um, if she if she doesn't have to you know, draw any distinctions with with Bernie Sanders. I wonder how long their friendship can survive this if it becomes obvious that Sanders 
um, you know, the biggest threat that he has to, 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 to being in the finals is, is Warren. Does he drop the knife at some point? Um, I, I thought it was telling in the, in the run up to the, the first debate, Sanders campaign manager was telling people, this is not the time for Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to have their big fight to me suggesting that there will be a time. So, you know, maybe that, maybe that happens. Maybe that happens later. I think though, more broadly, there are a lot of establishment Democrats who are terrified by a, a Sanders uh, or a, a Sanders or Warren, but, but Warren, that, so a lot of them are viewing the ones I've talked to view her as a, as a bigger threat to the nomination. And they, they think that that would be a losing, uh, a, a losing candidacy in their view or their fear. Um, and, and I think it's possible that you have just like there's a kind of nascent stop Bernie or stop Biden. You could have a stop Warren campaign that, uh, that tries to take her down. I, she won't go through unscathed. Nobody does. She's not going to take anyone by surprise at the end and just be, wow, just popping up at the last moment. There will be people that are, you know, that are, that are concerned about that. A lot of the business community are concerned about what it would mean. Um, there's a lot of establishment Democrats who think Medicare for all is a big mistake. And she's come to that party, although Bernie led the way there. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of time for that to play out. Um, and, you know, she, she obviously is a, she's a formidable candidate. I agree with you. It's not a fluke. And mm-hmm. I think the, you know, I think between the Sanders folks and some of the more establishment folks, there's a lot of people that would uh, rather see her not be the nominee. Hey, Rick, how is ABC covering this race? Do you guys have embeds? Uh, and, and what's the strategy to cover a race with so many, with so many candidates in it? Yeah, well, we start with more embeds than we've ever had. Uh, we have 18 reporters um, who are covering both the Democrats and the Republicans. That includes people that are covering Trump and, wow. and other Republicans. That's a lot. Independents. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot, but it's not enough to cover all the candidates. Um, but we're also, you know, we're also going to cover the states pretty closely and have people focus more on states than candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've also, you know, we've also kind of been very loose about assignments, um, less less defined assignments than we've had in previous cycles where there's one person that we've identified as the person on a particular candidate. There's some of that, but I think a lot more kind of zone coverage or conceptual coverage around it. Um, and, you know, trying to bring different points of view. We thought a lot about this. We, you know, I, I was really happy with our embed class because it is, um, it's a, it's a diverse group in terms of almost any way you can define it in terms of, um, in terms of uh, experiences in journalism, um, you know, stage of life, uh, uh, ethnicity, gender. I mean, just there's they represent a lot of different things. And I feel like it's been very valuable because they, you know, this is a historically diverse Democratic primary um, and they bring a lot of different experiences. You know, people that come from a print background, people that are pure broadcast background, some who come up the ranks as producers here at ABC. And I told them all that we we need to embrace the uncertainties of this race, you know, expect that we're going to be surprised and lean in on that. You know, we're not pretending to know things that we don't at this stage. You've covered a number of presidential campaigns. I'm just curious, is there anything that, so what, what if anything have you, are you doing differently or learned from how uh, you covered the 2016 race? I think you know, one, one thing that seems like an obvious point is listening a lot more. You know, when we send our reporters out there, it's become almost a requirement, if not a requirement, that they talk to voters um, and not just quote the candidates on the stage. And, you know, working with our digital team, we're making sure that there's, you know, actual people's voices that are reflected in the story and that when we're sending 
around our content publishing online or sending it around internally, we're talking a little bit about how the crowd reacted or about some of the notable things like that. Um, I, I think also, you know, the, the prediction game is sort of less valuable than ever. Um, people always want to know who's going to win, who's winning the horse race. But, you know, the stories along the way um, are really what drive it. Um, you know, I, I, I told my team that I've long thought about these things in terms of campaigns and in terms of elections. And the election is who's going to be the nominee, who's going to be the president. But if all we do is tell the story of the election for the next year and a half, it's kind of a flat story. Obviously, the stakes are huge, but there's not, it's not that interesting to just know who's going to win. Right. The, the campaign is how you get there. And, and that's where you have this unbelievably interesting group of Democratic candidates who are jousting against each other in different ways. You have um, these, you know, the, the, uh, what, what an age range and a range of, of diverse backgrounds. I mean, in, in every way, it's, it, it's such a, it's such a glorious thing to watch to see these really ambitious, really smart people who are going for this office and they're not, you know, to go from like mid thirties to late seventies and to have this huge range of backgrounds of impressive people. Mm -hmm. It can be a lot of fun to, to see those things develop. And, you know, I assume there's going to be, you know, more, more kind of political combat along the way because that's how campaigns work. But um, it's just a, it's a really interesting group to cover and, you know, I've told our team to, to embrace all, every storyline that, that develops out of that. Yeah, Rick, and you're exactly right. And as a longtime Democratic strategist who's worked in politics for a long time, I love seeing the quote-unquote bench rebuilt. You know, for a long time, people were saying, oh, yeah. the Democrats don't have, you know, they've only got Hillary Clinton. You know, they don't, they don't have anybody, um, you know, waiting in the wings who's viable to run for the presidency. Well, this is proving them wrong. I mean, we've got such, you know, so many extraordinary people running. And, you know, I guess the only tiny little upshot of Trump's candidacy and winning is that a lot of folks took a look at their resume and their background and said, you know what, I maybe I haven't worked in Washington for, you know, 20 years, but I still think that I have the, the you know, the bona fides and the qualifications and the d- desire and the experience to run for the presidency. And I think that's what you're sort of seeing in this um, interesting, diverse field of candidates that we have. So, Rick, I want to pivot quickly to the third uh, DNC Democratic debate, which is taking place in Houston, and ABC is airing it. Very exciting. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're very excited. Um, you know, the qualifications for this debate have essentially doubled. So candidates have to get two percent in four national slash early state polls under in between the second debate and the third debate, and then they also have to um, have one hundred and thirty thousand unique donors as opposed to um, sixty five thousand, which was the threshold before. Is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? Anything that they should know? Um, you know, we're still obviously about a month away from the third debate, but is there anything you'd like to share with folks about what to expect? Well, it, it's going to be, it's going to be terrific. Um, we're excited. We're partnering with, uh, Texas Southern University, which is historically black college in, uh, in Houston. And yeah, I'm really excited about the venue. Uh, and Houston is such an interesting place on so many levels, so many issues that touch Houstonians and Texans generally that I, I'm, I feel fortunate to, um, to have a location that we found in conjunction with the DNC that's so, mm-hmm. that's so fascinating. There's just so many issues that, that spring, you know, straight out of Houston. Um, in terms of the number of candidates, we don't know yet. Um, by our calculations, which are unofficial, there's nine who've qualified, uh, a couple more who are close. Um, there's also a whole bunch of candidates that are spending money here late, I assume, to get their polling numbers up. 
uh, and a lot to, to get their donations numbers up. So, you know, we, we won't know until, you know, a couple of weeks, the end of August, uh, how many make the stage um, and, and what that all looks like. Um, it's fair to say it's likely to be less than 20. Um, from, you know, I think that New York Times and some others have looked at it and, and predicted that it would be substantially less than 20. But, you know, we've thought all along that we want to cover the field as it actually stands on the date of our debate. And we're excited about coming back after Labor Day for the first time. You know, the, the, there's no debate in the month of August. There was one in June and one in July. So it feels like things are things are starting to get more serious after Labor Day. People start to tune a little bit more uh, and make it a real, real robust um, exchange of uh, exchange of ideas. Uh, I, I think the issues are primed for these candidates to have a, a pretty a pretty significant debate, um, and uh, we're we're as excited as everyone else to find out who's going to be there. And have you announced the uh, pan- the panelists yet, or is that coming up? We have not. All stay tuned on all of that. Great, great. Um, I did see on the in the note today that it looks like uh, Andrew Yang actually may have qualified. Is that is is he part yeah. of your? Uh, um, yeah, I mean he's he he has uh, again. These are not certified by anyone, and and he'll have to get his number of donors certified by the DNC. But you know, based on the criteria put out by the DNC, he does appear to have four qualifying polls, um, which you know. It, 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 it's a it's a it's a it's an achievement. It's ask ask some of the other candidates how hard that is. Um, people that are you know mayors or governors or, or or senators from even very big states that have big political bases have been a hard time getting their numbers up. So it would appear that Andrew Yang is is going to is going to make it. Um, and you know, as surprised as anyone else might be, it's uh, I think the point you made earlier about people looking themselves in the mirror and thinking that even though my background isn't traditionally what you would associate with a uh, presidential campaign. There's people that are given to the shot nonetheless. I got one last question for you, Rick. Um, is there anyone that we haven't talked about t- uh, today, you know, a Cory Booker or a Gillibrand, uh, one of the sort of tier two candidates right now that we should keep an eye on and maybe your embeds are saying, look, you've, they've got a great organization in Iowa or South Carolina and just keep, you know, keep an eye on them. Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned Booker. He's going to qualify for, for the debate as well, it would appear. Um, Gillibrand is going to have a harder time, but she's among the candidates that are starting to spend money. I'll tell you one thing I've been surprised by, and, and maybe there's still something there. I, I would have guessed that there was a slot for one of the governors or former governors between Governor Inslee, uh, Governor Hickenlooper, Governor Bullock. You mm-hmm. have, you know, interest, you know, interesting backstories and established reelected governors, um, long histories in their states. In the case of Governor Bullock, um, winning in a very, very red state, Governor Hickenlooper, a very purple state. Um, I would have thought that we'd see one of them jump forward and, and get to the head of the pack. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. I don't foreclose that, that possibility, but I think there's something, you know, traditionally, as you know, um, most of the successful presidential candidates, um, have been governors, with the exception of Obama and, and Kennedy. Um, you know, and, and in other cases, the vice president is taking over, you know, it's, it's, it's governors like Clinton and Reagan and Carter. Uh, that's been the way that parties have uh, found their way, uh, found their way back or, you know, found success. So it, it, it surprised me a bit not to see that, but I, I think that's a dynamic we could still see play out. I mean, isn't that so crazy when you think about it? It could still definitely play out, but it's looking at least in my view, it's looking less and less like that actually is going to happen. You've got somebody like Andrew Yang, who 
as you said, it appears that he's qualified for the third debate, yet you've got Jay Inslee, Steve Bullock. I mean, I understand, you know, all the dynamics in terms of why they haven't qualified yet for the third debate and why they are having a difficult time getting traction in the polls. But it really seems that perhaps in this new, I don't know if it's social media, I don't know if it's, um, you know, what factors come into play here, but it seems like we have sort of entered this new, um, you know, this new paradigm where it's going to be that much harder for whatever reason for a very popular governor in their respective state to um, be the obvious or be an obvious front runner. It's just a completely different situation. And I would assume that if you are somebody like, you know, like Steve Bullock or John Hickenlooper, who was a wildly popular governor in Colorado, you've got to be frustrated that Andrew Yang, um, sort of this little known guy out of California, is raising more money than you and is getting more traction in the polls than you are. Yeah, I mean, you know, the rules have changed because there are no rules, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, it definitely frustrated uh, Jeb Bush that that Donald Trump uh, was able to was able to lap him uh, in in the polling, despite the money he amassed and the following that he had and the name recognition. I mean, things are different now, and I think you know the idea. Historically, a lot of those governors that were successful would be able to just kind of take people by surprise, work hard in Iowa, New Hampshire, and break through at the right moment. You know, maybe that we're in more of a nationalized, you know. Um, uh, social media and cable-driven environment where all you need to do is quote-unquote go, go viral, uh, and uh, and you have no problem getting your getting the, the donations that are you know that that reflect that. And it's just it, it just isn't the time for um, you know the, the traditional path. Um, you know, Martin O'Malley last time around was another one that he looked the part and sounded the part, and you think you know two-term governor of Maryland should be a top-tier contender. It just never happened for him on the Democratic side either. So. Yeah, I mean, right. uh, for people that have kind of grown up and come through the ranks um, in either Capitol Hill or in, in a state house, and to see that the rules have changed, it has to be it has to be pretty jarring. But you know, I you know the Democrats set up a, a system of debate qualification based on the polling, based on the fundraising thresholds, and you know, I think as they pointed out, like if uh, if a candidate has a message that resonates, it's going to be rewarded, and it's going to be rewarded in polling as well as in, in fundraising. Yeah, Ricky just kind of made me chuckle t- ch- talking about Martin O'Malley because we had this giant opposition research file on him during Hil- Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign. And we pretty much chucked that and like toward the end of 2015 <laughs> because we didn't need it. Um, but we were ready for, you know, we had some we had some hits that we were ready to throw out at him and it, we just never really had to use them because he didn't go anywhere. Um, yeah, Doug, any- that, was, that, that oh. was definitely a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Doug, anything else? No, Rick, thank you so much. This has been fantastic, and um, we really appreciate it, and uh, you guys are doing a great job covering the race for ABC News. Uh, anything you want to hey, promote, like The Note or a podcast or anything? Well, I'll, I'll tell people to listen to the Powerhouse Politics podcast that I do with John Carl every week, which is a blast. Read The Note. But I need to, your listeners to know that I'm onto your gig, man. You guys spent years... Um, on the other end of these conversations, and I know the only reason you're doing this podcast is so you can turn the table on reporters. I'm impressed by your initiative. <laughs> you're a wise man, well Rick. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, don't well don't tell played. our secrets. <laughs> well, the great Rick Klein, thank you so much. ABC News' political director um, and for my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod. This is Doug Thornell, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>